Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, it's John Ford night an evening dedicated to the only director with four Oscars in his quiver. And guiding us on this Ford journey will be author, film historian, biographer, screenwriter, and educator, Joseph McBride, who not only authored the critical study, John Ford, with the late Michael Wilmington, of which a newly revised and expanded edition will soon be available from the University of Press of Kentucky, but also authored the biography, Searching for John Ford, now available through the University Press of Mississippi, as well as 19 other books, many of them on prominent film directors. Welcome, Joe. Hi, good to be with you, Steve and Avi. It's great to talk about John Ford with you. Thank you. And joining me, as my, as you mentioned, as my co-host tonight is film historian Avi Hearn. Always a delight to hear on the cast, along with his perfect impression of James Mason, <laughs> well, which, uh, <laughs> which we did, heard, heard ad nauseum last week. <laughs> well, which, which we will, I will withhold because Mason never made a film with Ford. <laughs> That's too bad. Hello, Avi. Good to see you. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're talking about a, a quintessential film director, um, you know, a, a hero to many of us. Uh, at, at, at the basic level, he's one of our great storytellers. I have a problem with storytelling today, Joe. I just feel like we've lost our way. I, I mean, there are good movies that are released every year. It's, you know, there's, but it seems to me that the kind of storytelling that was around in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and to a certain extent, the 60s has somewhat evaporated from film. And I'm curious, since you've been studying film for ages, and you certainly know current film, uh, what what's your take on that? I, I think you're right. Um, part of it is, you know, the nature of filmmaking and film watching has changed. I mean, I was just reading an article today about how fragmentation, as we, we've all heard about this, is becoming a common mode of film watching for young younger people on TikTok and other sites, you know, where they're sitting down to watch a two-hour movie is maybe a little passe, unfortunately. Um, but uh, they they consume films in, in brief bites. Uh, you know, I'm often surprised. Uh, I teach at San Francisco State, and my students, um, when I came there, uh, uh, older colleagues said, "Don't ever show movies from the, the last five years because they've seen them all. Just show them older films that they need to see." Well, uh, they don't even see the films from the last five years anymore, and they don't even see the current films. And I used to, on Mondays, come in and say, oh, what did you see over the weekend? And, and now they just kind of look at me like, what? They don't go to movies. Uh, it's very peculiar to me. Um, you know, in the background there, you have a picture of uh, a poster of Ford Apache, which is the Ford film that got me to fall in love with John Ford's work back in 1966 when I saw it on television. And that's the kind of film that I wish were being made more, you know, a human drama with a lot of comedy and drama and warmth and epic sweep, but intimate at the same time. Frank Nugent wrote a great screenplay. The two screenplays that influenced me the most were Citizen Kane by Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles and 
Frank Nugent's Fort Apache. Um, and it depicts a whole wide range of characters, both men and women and uh, Native Americans and cavalry. And it's, it's quite a film. Um, but they're not making that kind of film very much. I mean, I, I, I'm excited like everybody else to read about Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm hoping it will have that same kind of epic sweep that Scorsese is a great John Ford uh, admirer and he he works in that tradition. It sounds like it could be a, a great modern Western. Uh, we won't see it until the fall, but it just played the Cannes Film Festival. But um, Scorsese, I was just thinking when you asked that question that he talked about the the current mode for super fast editing that's very jagged and he talked about how it disorients people and people seem to enjoy that and i don't really enjoy being disoriented when i watch a film i mean sometimes within a film you know a sequence can do that for you but two hours of it or, or even two hours and 40 minutes i have to see uh transformers films because i wrote a biography of Steven Spielberg and he's Michael Bay's enabler and I I saw Transformers too and I had to literally hold my eyes open for the last 40 minutes of it. That's well I, I think we're all a little most of us are a little baffled by this year's best picture winner everything everywhere all at once which yeah. may be the most baffling best picture winner of all time I mean it's it's polarized the whole country people either can't stand it or they embrace it as the greatest thing since sliced bread. But there is a perfect example of, certainly there was a lot of creativity involved, but traditional storytelling? No, I don't think so. No, it's all sliced and diced. And, uh, you know, Scorsese talked about how films kind of assault you now, and that film has that feeling, uh, I mean, very well made, but uh, it just kind of throws stuff at you and, and, and kind of knocks you off kilter all the way through. And um, it gets exhausting for a long stretch of that kind of thing. Sure. Well, you know, in a, in, a, in a general sense, um, one of the things I, I, I miss in films is that, that once upon a time, they had a sense of formalism, which has been lost. And I think that's kind of what you're describing. I mean, it, 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 to a large degree, it seems to become a, a virtue for a film to look and sound as though it was conceived and executed on the fly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Also, um, when you talk about formalism, it makes me think of wide shots. You know, John Ford was terrific at, uh, you know, not only landscape photography, who was the greatest at that, but also just doing a scene in, in one, you know, in a kind of a, a master shot and, and not cutting into giant close-ups all the time. He would save his close-ups for when they really counted. He would have maybe six close-ups in a film and they would really have an impact because, you know, you weren't that close to people until it really mattered. And um you know you you always uh, there was a kind of invisible proscenium in john ford's films but you didn't feel that like in francis ford's films his, his brother who's preceded him into films he came from the theater and and never lost that proscenium sense i mean actually he evolved to some extent but not as much as his younger brother did um but john ford uh, had a theatrical background too in a sense that he was an usher at Portland main uh, the biggest theater and he saw all the great contemporary uh, actors and he would see a play you know five or six times in a week and he would memorize the dialogue and he'd get to know the actors and the people backstage and so there was a theatrical influence but there's something uh, always moving about his films in, in both senses of the word people are moving around even though um, he, he doesn't uh, move his camera very much you know he 
I asked him when I interviewed him at the end of his career, I said, when do you think the camera should be moved? And he said, when there's a cause for it. <laughs> and I, when I played that tape for my co-author, Mike Wellington, I said, that, that wasn't really much of an answer. He said, no, 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 it's a great answer. That's a great answer. When there's a cause for it, he'll move the camera, you know? And, um, but he didn't do it just to make you vertiginous or nauseated or whatever. He, he was doing it for emotional reasons. That's the other form of movement that he has in well, his that, Well, that's just it. I mean, in, in the, in the um, wide shots and in, in, the, in the, the master shot, you establish the physical spatial geography of the scene. And in, in establishing that, you establish the emotional geography of it. Yeah, and Spielberg is another um, admirer of Ford, as we saw in The Fablemans, uh, his wonderful uh, final sequence where he goes to meet John Ford, which is just the way it happened to him. And uh, he's, he is one who respects uh, creative geography is what films give you. It's not exactly the same as actual geography, but he believes in the same thing Avi was just mentioning that Ford does. He, he, he roots you in a place, time and place, and, and you, you know where you are, you know where everything is. And, and that's very important to uh, a filmmaker like Ford or Spielberg who cares about social context, you know, and, and maybe we've lost a lot of social context if it's just a lot of sensation. Joe, Joe, tell us a little bit about your first encounters with movies where were you, I, I always ask this every week because it's just part of the way I interview. I like to know where people's origins are. Were you a film going family when you were little? Yeah, my father, Ray McBride, worked on the Milwaukee Journal and he was their film reviewer and uh, radio and television reviewer. And uh, he told me his favorite, well, his two favorite films were Stagecoach by John Ford and The Maltese Falcon, the John Huston film. And the only time Ford smiled in the one hour I spent with him was when I said my father's favorite film was Stagecoach, and he was very pleased. Um, <laughs> but so so we had a TV set much earlier than most people because of my dad, and uh, so I started watching TV in 1951, and TV was great in those days. You know, before everybody got TVs, it was more of a sort of uh, intellectual audience. I used to watch Omnibus on Sundays, the arts arts program on CBS, and. Uh, I would watch Mike Wallace interviewing people and, you know, things like that that we don't see much on TV anymore. But uh, I started going to movies very early. Um, our local theater, which is uh, was called the Tosa Theater in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, which is a Milwaukee suburb, is now the Rosebud Cinema, which is a better name. But every Saturday I'd see um, usually a Western or a science fiction film. And, and then even more than that, um, every day during the week there was a Western on TV at four o'clock on a show called Foreman Tom's Jamboree. And so I was, uh, Westerns have always been my favorite genre. And I had a, a really interesting experience with Foreman Tom's Jamboree. I, I was a little kid in those days, I've since grown, but I was getting beaten up a lot by kids at school and, and all that. And I was instinctively for the underdog. And I began noticing that these Indians were always getting uh, whipped, you know, they, they were getting shot and, and conquered and one thing or another. And I thought, well, why is this happening? This is very weird, you know. And I, I began hoping I would see a Western in which the Indians would win. And so one day I came home and Foreman Tom flipped on a movie and the Indians won and I was so thrilled. And I don't know if it was Fort Apache, but there weren't very many others. Fort Apache, 1948, ahead of its time. Not only did the Indians win, it's, it's loosely based on the Custer uh, story, they're the good guys. They're the heroes of the film. And uh, 
it's a very radical film when you when you think about it but it flew under the radar because people didn't pay attention to westerns uh reviewers sneered at them and wagon master is my favorite john ford film now 1950 western that's one that not enough people have seen but it's this small intimate film with a bunch of his pals going out in the desert with eight wagons and uh some show people and some native americans and they uh, you know it's it's all of john ford is in that film but um it's interesting when i looked up the reviews of that film this is very indicative of the attitude people had uh it got criticized because of two things one was the indians were friendly which is one of the nicest things about the film and the other was there's not enough violence there's not enough shooting and killing and that's part of the point of the film it's about a bunch of mormons going west and they hire a couple of young guys, horse traders, to um, guide them. And, and the two guys have to resort to gunfire to save the Mormons, which is ironic, you know, bitterly ironic in a way. But it's over very fast. And those are the things we like about the movie now. There's not a lot of violence and, and the Native Americans. Sometimes, are... sometimes uh, you can get into trouble. I uh, did a lot of research in the life of Rod Serling. And uh, after the Twilight Zone, Rod wanted to do a, a anti-violent Western series called The Loner. Oh wow! Uh, with Lloyd Bridges, and uh, the whole point of the series was that he wasn't resorting to violence every two minutes. It wasn't a gun-toting thing, and the series died a quick, quick death. People did not want to see that kind of show. It's interesting, though. You know, Fort Apache deals with a very dignified uh apache nation i mean you give it ford imbues them with a lot of dignity and in fact uh uh henry fauna who was so effective as colonel thursday is portrayed as a at the end of the day as a glory hunter he didn't really care yeah. about dignity he wanted to just get his name in the papers again because he felt he'd been he'd been seconded out and forgotten uh, I thought that was interesting. And of course, the, the final battle, I shouldn't give away spoilers because a lot of our listeners may not know Fort Apache, but it was quite effective. Um, <clears throat> well, if they know about Custer, they know about Fort Apache. <laughs> right, know, it's interesting right. you use the phrase Glory Hunter because back in the 1930s, Ford wanted to make a movie about Custer called Glory Hunter. And the studios oh. wouldn't let him make a movie debunking Custer, the myth of Custer being this great man. And uh, they died with their boots on the Raw Walsh film from 1941 is historically ludicrous. It's very well filmed, but it's it's portraying Custer in a very favorable light. Uh, so he had to disguise it by changing the names around it. I found a letter that he wrote in 1948, the same year as Fort Apache, to a woman who wrote him and said, uh, how come since you came back from World War II, you're making mostly Westerns and, and why not make more contemporary films, you know? And Ford wrote back very candidly to her. He said, you can get away with more, I'm paraphrasing, uh, in Westerns because people don't pay a lot of attention to them. And you, you can deal with some hot button issues, you know, racial prejudice and um, all kinds of injustice, which, uh, you know, French critics said Ford had an obsession with justice. And if you did that kind of thing in a contemporary setting, it would cause controversy back, you know, that was during the Red Scare. Mm -hmm. And uh, but nobody really paid attention to Westerns. And um, uh, but Ford was ahead of his time. Uh, Broken Arrow and Devil's Doorway came out after Fort Apache. And there was in the 50s, there were some Westerns that were trying to take the Native American point of view, but a lot of them were shoot em ups and Indians were the bad guys and we used to play cowboy and Indian and all that kind of stuff. But 
Um, you know, I actually, uh, when you mentioned nonviolent Western series, the, the one Western series that I watched pretty much was Have Gun, Will Travel. And there were about 20 Western series on in the 50s. And I wasn't interested in those because I liked the wide open spaces I would see at the movie theater or on, you know, the older Westerns on TV. And I wasn't interested in the back lot kind of Westerns, but Have Gun, Will Travel, I really liked. And seeing it now, it holds up really well because the, the protagonist, Richard Boone's paladin is a very sophisticated man who doesn't want to resort to gunplay unless he has to, you know, he's a hired, uh, I guess you call a hired gun, but he's, he doesn't go out and, uh, seeking trouble and he likes the good life in San Francisco. He stays in a hotel and he's, it's got good dialogue. It's well-directed. Ida Lupino directed some of them and, you know, so there were some people who were trying to counter the trend and Ford certainly was in his, his own Westerns during that period. Well, that, that show uh, came on and they showed his business card, Wire Paladin. I always thought Paladin's first name was Wire. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's but, funny. You know, get, getting back to um, Ford saying that, you know, that you can, you can do things with Westerns because people are, what you're saying, that, that, that they don't pay attention to it. You know, a film like The Searchers is actually a film about miscegenation. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, it's a word that people hardly know anymore. I mean, it's just, you never hear it spoken. You never, you know, but in 1956 and obviously earlier, uh, audiences knew a film about miscegenation when they saw one It made them profoundly uncomfortable, which is what the searches was designed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I taught a course recently uh, and I had to explain the concept of miscegenation to my students and in their innocence, <laughs> actually, even I had to explain racism to students. To, I mean, that's kind of, a sign of uh, their goodness in a way, but it's also naive because there's a lot of racism around us. And But the whole idea of miscegenation being threatening is, uh, you know, something that is of the past pretty much. But, you know, The Searchers is another case in point. When you look at the reviews, it got really good reviews, but nobody mentioned in the American press that Ethan Edwards was a racist and uh, out to kill his niece and hates Indians. The only review in America that uh, kind of got it was one of the trade papers said something like, uh, there's something wrong with this man, but we can't quite figure out what it is. You know, the racism was so deeply ingrained in our culture, people didn't even notice it. Look Magazine ran a, a three-page spread on the film and called it a classic, but they 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 didn't deal with what it was really about. So, I mean, I guess probably when Avi mentions the audiences, probably individual audience people were more uh, sophisticated than some of the reviewers were uh, in understanding the film. But that film, you know, you look at what it, what won the best picture Oscar that year, Around the World in 80 Days, which is a fossil right now. And um, the searchers kind of flew under the radar, too, even though it's a big, epic, beautiful Western. We, in your book, uh, I remember you uh, wrote uh, that in a, an interview, so the, the, the interviewer at, uh, referred to Ethan Edwards as the piece's villain, and Wayne took great exception to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was an interview um, in the 70s, and <laughs> yeah, he got really angry because he, he thought he was the hero of the film, and Harry Carey Jr. in his wonderful book on John Ford, uh, Company of Heroes, which I recommend is the best uh, study of how Ford worked. It's, it's really a scream, too. I mean, it's so funny and uh, fun to read. But he said Wayne was frightening in that film. And he worked with Wayne a lot and he liked him. But he said on that film, he was he was in character all the way through, even at lunch. You know, he had 
said the most frightening eyes I'd ever mm -hmm. seen. And when Wayne, in that interview you mentioned, um, Wayne fantasized about a sequel to The Searchers in which he and Debbie would wind up having a ranch together in some kind of ancestral <laughs> relationship. It's very, very bizarre. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Um, it's very hard to talk about John Ford without mentioning John Wayne. I mean, they were kind of like uh, bacon and eggs together. And I think that uh, uh, Wayne, I always felt Wayne was underappreciated as an actor. You know, he became oh, yeah. kind of an iconic figure. But um, going back to Ford Apache, which is probably one of the first films I really embraced. I had a, I had a thing, I was probably seven or eight and I, I loved the cavalry. There was a certain um, mystique, a certain uh, uh, aura around cavalrymen. It just seemed, and I think that um, Ford's three films, Ford Apache, Shawara, Yellow Ribbon, and, and Rio Grande, <clears throat> give kind of the cavalry a, a bit of, um, uh, you know, kind of, a, I don't even know the word to describe it, but I was enthralled by the cavalry. And of course, you know, the cavalry was a very tough uh, posting when you got got posted in the, the Southwest. Um, what do you think uh, attracted uh, Ford to the cavalry? Well, it's complicated. Uh, you know, he did a very clever thing, too. When Ford Apache was in production, he wrote a letter to Joseph Breen, who was the censor at the time. And he was this sort of professional Irish Catholic guy and very prudish and very racist and anti-Semitic and you name it. And, uh, but Ford had this film on his hands that could have been seen as a hot potato because it's about a, a, a guy, a military commander who is called the madman by one of his officers and he leads his men into disaster. Uh, so Ford wrote a letter to Breen and said, I just want to alert you, I'm making this film about uh, the Irish American contribution to our history as seen in the US cavalry and how wonderful it is that, you know, uh, our guys, you know, are gonna have this page of the history books because a lot of them were Irish American immigrants uh, off the boat. And there's a wonderful scene in, um, Scorsese's Gangs of New York, which captures the whole Irish American experience in one shot. He shows a coffin ship, as they called ships that brought in the immigrants. Many people died on, on, on route. And um, they're uh, unloading coffins on one side of the ship. And then people are walking down a gangplank onto the dock in, in which there's a table and they're being signed up to join the Union Army uh, right off the boat. It's all in one shot. And that's kind of, you know, John Ford uh, homage right there. And um, there, Ford identified with minority group members and the Irish were uh, ethnic minority. And, uh, but if you look at Ford Apache, he has a Mexican American uh, cavalryman, Pedro Armanderas, who was Mexico's top box office actor at the time. He gives a terrific performance. And, Charles Ramirez Berg, a Latino author, says that's the first fully rounded portrait of a Hispanic character in a Hollywood film. Wow. And, and then you have uh, German Americans and, and uh, Ford grew up in a multi-ethnic neighborhood in Portland, Maine. Um, he was a Shabbos goy. He oh. would light you know, stoves and things for Jewish people, Orthodox Jews on the Sabbath. And he had uh, French Canadian friends, a lot of them, because it's close to Canada up there, and black people. And uh, Ford was proud of that, and he, he 
portrays that in his films. That's one reason I've always liked his films. If you go way back even to the very beginning, 1917, they're all, almost always, uh, well, not, not in every film, but in a lot of films, you have black characters, you have um, Mexican-American characters, all kinds of ethnic characters, Jewish characters. And they're all part of the fabric of American life. And sometimes they're stereotypical and uh, but there's always a lot of warmth and humor connected with those characters. And uh, but he um, he he stands out. Um, Ty Gallagher who wrote a book on Ford and said Ford was about the only director who dealt with racial prejudice and ethnic prejudice in that period who cared about it. And if you look at say Howard Hawks, who's a great director, but he he has an almost exclusively wasp world in his films. Um, very few minority group people. And I, I did book Hawks on Hawks about Hawks, and I was talking to him about contemporary films, and he got into a complaining mode. And he said, "There's more goddamn minorities that you have to deal with," you know. But <laughs> that's not Ford's. That's not Ford's attitude. He was proud mm -hmm. of being an Irish American at a time when being proud of your roots was not fashionable. That came in with Alex Haley in the early '70s with uh, Roots, and before that, I remember it well. We were all encouraged. To, to melt down our differences in the melting pot myth, you know, to be homogeneous Americans, whatever that is. And Ford didn't, uh, he was having none of that. He was pr proudly Irish. Um, I think I've lost your question a little well, bit. Well, no, no, I, we were talking about the cavalry and-, and Oh yeah, cavalry. And what- Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they all sing a lot and they, they he loves those marching shots. My son, John, who's a graduate student in college now, he, he went to a Ford retrospective that we had in LA in 1994. We showed, I think it was almost all of Ford's 90 odd films that survive. And John saw, I think 40 in one month and 35 millimeter, which is amazing. He was seven years old. And um, I said to him later, but he, he called it at the time. He said, this is a cinematic form of child abuse. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when I asked him recently, he said, no, no, no. I really had a wonderful time. It was great. He was kind of like the mascot of the group. But he saw these films on the big screen. And um, I said to him at the time, I said, what films do you like most? He said, well, you know, I, I get a little tired of those shots of guys riding along the horizon all the time. They all kind of look alike to me, but he liked The Grapes of Wrath and Three Godfathers and Liberty Valance were his favorites. That's a pretty interesting mixture. Speaking, oh, go ahead, Avi, I'm sorry. Well, I, you know, I, I, one thing I'm curious about, um, you know, the, to me, there's, there's a real difference in character between the films that um, Ford did at Fox for Zanuck and the other and, and virtually everything else he ever did you know but obviously the stuff he did you know his own company the argosy films but also the stuff at, at rko and and even something like three godfathers xanax seemed to hold a tighter rein on him i mean there was there's a there's a a um a restraint in, in those films that you don't find in his other work yeah, and that's a matter of some controversy. Dan Ford, who's Ford's grandson, wrote a biography of his grandfather, and he took the position in there that Zanuck had a good influence on Ford by restraining some of his um, excesses or his impulses that Dan doesn't like as much. I mean, Ford certainly was sentimental and um, Irish chauvinist, et cetera, and his comedy is broad. Uh, in, in the book, uh, Mike Wilmington and I did, I've done an updated uh, epilogue in which I've tackled these issues. I wrote an essay on Ford and race 
Ford and Irishness and Ford's use of comedy. And these are the things that people bring up if they don't like John Ford or if they have reservations. And I try to uh, understand and explain you know, the central importance of all these things to Ford. And I also wrote a long section on Ford's silent work, which we now know much more about because they've discovered, uh, well, there are now 27 silent films that exist in whole or in part compared with 12 when we did the book. Um, but the comedy thing is is a thing that turns a lot of people off. And uh, Zanuck um, wrote a very funny comment in one of his memos. He said, you know, if John Ford runs out of plot, he has a long shot with a lot of slanting shadows and somebody's usually singing some kind of a, a song, which is kind of true. You know? So, I mean, Zanuck did, uh, Ford trusted Zanuck to edit his films. Uh, you know, Ford, Ford shot films, you could only edit them one way pretty much and he it seems odd today when you hear about ford didn't you know hang out in the cutting room like most directors do now but he literally uh, didn't shoot uh, extra footage uh, maybe just a little here and there and robert parrish who was one of his editors uh, asked him something about how to cut this film and he said just cut the slates off and join them together and that's about it but so but zanuck he trusted to uh do things with his films and, and zanuck did cut back on some of those things that but see i think those are the the things that i like about john ford the 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 emotion the strong emotion the humor i mean it is true that sometimes his humor gets a little tiresome you know people uh, having fights and saloons and things gets you know, like Wings of Eagles, I think the first part of the film uh, is a lot of brawling and it gets kind of silly, you know, until the guy breaks his neck and then it becomes a real different kind of film, very dramatic. But um, I, I tend to like Ford's humor and it balances the tragedy. And it's a very Irish point of view. Um, Ford said right before he filmed The Searchers, he, he gave an interview to Jean Matry, who wrote the first book about him, French critic. And he said, I, I should like to do a tragedy the most serious in the world that turned into the ridiculous and then he made the searchers and that's that's what the searchers is and people didn't didn't get it and a lot of people still don't get it because it is a very serious film about racism and this tragic figure john wayne's character um but it's absurdist as, as well because the whole film takes place pretty much in monument valley except for one detour into the snowy regions of canada and I, they're supposed to go to Mexico at some point, but it's still Monument Valley. So they're they're kind of going around in circles, literally. And old Moe's the madman. And uh, I mean, he's supposed to be the crazy one. But I was just reading a comment that somebody said, well, he's actually the only sane character in the film. And that's kind of true. <laughs> he keeps finding the girl after Wayne keeps losing her for, for five years. It's, it's a deconstruction and, and mockery of the traditional hero, because here's a guy who starts out being heroic and says, I'm going to go and rescue my nieces. And, and he winds up after a while, Jeffrey Hunter realizes that Wayne is, is going to try to kill his, his surviving niece. And what kind of he's not a hero anymore. The hero becomes Jeffrey Hunter or even Ole Moe's. And at the end of the film, Ole Moe's finds her right down the road and <laughs> seven fingers marty seven fingers so they could have stayed home for five years and sitting <laughs> on the porch and and uh, it would have had the same effect and it's absurdist it's ridiculous well i mean just you just starting i mean it's, it's true of monument valley in general i mean particularly in the searchers because n nobody there's no reason for anybody to live there 
you can't graze cattle there's no water there's nothing it's just it's there because of the scenery and for no i mean it's it's so symbolic of the west as we like to think about it but but there's no reason for these people to be living there at all well i mean i went to monument valley um when i did was doing my first book on ford and uh, uh talked to navajos who worked with ford and i mean they people do live there it's the navajo nation and some of them like i interviewed billy yellow who's a 96 year old uh guy who uh, in, in the uh, late 1990s he, he had been in all the ford westerns made in monument valley he's one of the riders stuntmen and so i said what did you think of ford's pictures and he said he had never seen a motion picture. He's 96 years old. He had never been, he was living in a Hogan, you know, traditional life. He didn't have electricity and he'd never seen a movie. He was living the natural life. And, um, it, but it is very arid and, but they, you know, they do eke out a living and they had, they have sheep and, um, let, Ford... let, let me, let me tell you about Monument Valley. I had to go there because obviously, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, I've always wanted to go to places that were movie locations. My son and I went there about 12 years ago, more than that, 15 years ago. And I have to tell you that I, I, I can see why Ford loved working there because there's a spirit about that area. It's almost a, a kind of an ethereal presence. Uh, these, these buttes have kind of a quality I've never seen anywhere else in the world. It's almost like they're characters mm -hmm. staring down at you. And I also got a chance to hang out with some Navajos because they give you a standard tour there, which was rather expensive. But I was driving down the road one day and I saw a couple of Native American youth. They were Navajos and they offered to take me into the hinterlands because wow. they have permission because they're tribal. And we went in the area and I think we were not far from the area where Marty and Ethan hold up when Ethan gets wounded by the arrow that area there and i tell you the place has a magical quality about it that i could see something that ford would love it there oh it's so beautiful and you know what it, the only place it reminds me of ford thought it was the most beautiful place on earth but the west of ireland where ford's ancestors came from is has a certain similarity it's very bleak in some ways um but it's the light keeps changing all the time in both places. It's one of the magical qualities of Monument Valley. It's just the first time I went there um, early in the morning, I was sleeping in my car and this Japanese tourist guy was punching, you know, his fist on the window trying to get me to wake up and see the sunrise. It was spectacular, you know, <laughs> but um, it, it, it is so beautiful there. And um uh, I, I just want to tell a, a little story that when I, this was 1973, and I was en route from Wisconsin to California, and I went to Monument Valley, and I interviewed people who worked on Ford films, and there was a young guy there who was about 27, he was a Vietnam veteran, just came back from Vietnam, he was a Navajo guy, and he was wearing an army fatigue jacket with uh, insignia and all that, and and I said, uh, what do you think of John Ford? And he said, oh, is, uh, he, is he the old guy with the eye patch? And I said, yeah. And he said, he's okay. And I said, well, what do you think of John Wayne? <laughs> and he, his face really changed. And he said, if he comes back here to make another movie, I'm going to be up there in those rocks with my M1 rifle from Vietnam, <laughs> from Vietnam and I'll pick him off, he said. <laughs> so I had, this, I had this actual moral quandary thinking, for the next few years, if Wayne, if I hear that Wayne's going to Monument Valley, do I tell him that this guy's going to shoot, <laughs> or, or do I just let history happen? I really couldn't give you an answer. But what a story that would be! Indian kills John Wayne. <laughs> you know, the uh, as 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 beautiful as Monument Valley looks in the searchers, though. I mean, if, if one does not go there, 
the film that captures it best, I, I, I think, is um, Cheyenne Autumn. I mean, it is just uh, jaw-dropping, absolutely jaw-dropping. Yeah, the photography by William Clothier for thought was the best <laughs> photography he'd ever had, which is quite a compliment to, you know, because he worked with the greatest cinematographers. Oh, yeah. But when I saw that film in 35, you know, I, I, I've seen, I saw it in 16 millimeter a few times before I saw it on the big screen. You have to see it on the big screen because it, it's almost three-dimensional in its quality, the pictorial quality. And and it made a big difference because the film has some obvious flaws. I did the audio commentary for Warner Brothers, too, and I, I said, you know, we'll, we'll admit right away it has some obvious flaws because Ford wanted to make that as a low-budget Grapes of Wrath kind of film, black and white, and have only... actors with native american ancestry play the the um, main native roles you know like richard boone and um and and a few actors like that and uh, the studio would only uh, bankroll it as a big epic film with um, mexican american actors who are good but they're not authentic you know and then you have salminio who's italian american and you know it has those obvious flaws and, and dramatically it's somewhat inert to some extent it's a problem because you know, Monument Valley, it, it works in the searchers that they're going around in circles. To me, it, it's comparable to the Roadrunner cartoons, which I love. And Ethan is is like the coyote. And uh, Scar is like the Roadrunner, you know, and they're going around <laughs> in circles in this crazy place. But in Cheyenne Autumn, it's it actually is kind of hurt by that because they're supposed to be making an epic trek from Oklahoma to the Dakotas and they never leave Monument Valley and it it's becomes quite noticeable. And that, that hel- I think helps account for the feeling of lethargy you get. But when you see it on the big screen, it, it, it struck me that this is a poetic film. It's not a story film per se. It's not like Fort Apache where you get deeply involved in the characters' conflicts and dilemmas. It's more of a poetic epic about people on the land and it becomes a better film. I wish I could see the 70 millimeter print that allegedly exists in Sweden. I've never seen that. And I've been told by somebody who saw it that it's just mind blowing. You could see every piece of uh, dust and uh, rocks and, you know, it's just amazing. So so uh, we could probably just spend an evening just talking about the searchers, but Avi and I had an interesting conversation the other day where Avi brought up a rather I'd say a rather controversial theory about uh, Ethan going back into the canyon where he supposedly finds. Uh, oh yeah, I think I know what you're going to say. Heavy. Uh, Lucy, Lucy, Lucy's body, and then wraps him in his Johnny Reb coat and comes back to join Marty and right. and her brother. Uh, Avi, tell tell Joseph what you think is your theory about what actually happened back there. I think uh, you know, think that Ethan, Ethan comes back over the rise, and Marty and Brad are waiting there for him, and he tells them, you know, that that uh, and he found Lucy, and he buried her in his coat, and then they start asking him more questions. He says, you know, and he and he starts blubbering in a way that he does not in any place else in the film, even when he sees the body of of um, of Martha, with supposedly he may have had. Uh, so uh, relations that go beyond brother-in-law and sister-in-law. Um, he's very stoic, but here he's blubbering. And to me, that means only one thing, that he is lying to Marty and Ethan. He didn't find Lucy, Lucy's body. He found Lucy alive, raped her in the process of being raped, and he killed her. He killed his own niece. And, and yeah. you know, the last third of the movie, he's searching for Debbie for the exact same reason. I, I, I've entertained that 
theory quite a lot and I think it's quite valid. And it, the, one thing that's great about Nugent's script though is it, it contains very pregnant ellipses. You know, there, there are quite a number of things in the film that are not explained and that are left up to our imagination. And it, it, things that are left up to your imagination are more frightening mm -hmm. to some extent, you know, if, if that, that's part of the film is the, the fear of uh, the unseeable as some one, one uh, critic wrote a piece about uh, the searchers is about things that are unspeakable and unseeable, you know, and so that's an example of, uh, we don't really know what happened there. But I, I would also note that one thing he does, he, he kind of stumbles off his horse and sits in the sand and he's digging in the sand with his his uh, bowie knife like compulsively digging like he's just probably been digging at least that's my feeling is he probably well, dug a grave for lucy after killing her and uh, as you say he's um, a different kind of person and, and uh, the dialogue is suggestive you know where uh, brad is questioning him and Jeffrey Hunter's questioning him and he can hardly talk and uh, it's it, it fits his character that he might have killed uh, Lucy in the canyon. Well, the only the only uh, needle I'll poke in Avi's balloon is we do not hear any gunshots and he's not that far away. Mm. If you, Ethan shot an Indian brave and his his uh, niece, you would have heard gunshots. Well, actually, I mean, I. I, I see, I don't envision this scene, I mean, we can all envision it, whatever we think. Not that he discovered her being raped, but that she had been raped and, and uh, he, he felt she was violated because that's his racist uh, way of thinking that the thing that bothers him about Debbie is when she's old enough to have sexual congress with Scar. When she's a little girl, he, you know, it's he might be actually rescuing her, but after that, he's going to kill her. So uh, Lucy may have been uh, a rape victim and he might have found her there and, uh, or, uh, you know, I mean, that well, could, uh, but he, he could have killed her with a knife too. And, well, the thing is though, I, I, the Indian, the Comanche would have had to have been there because, I mean, I, there's, there's a scene at the Indian agency where they go to, they, they hope that Debbie is one of the repatriated uh, white women that are, that are being held, held there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, for years that scene, puzzled me and then I, I couldn't really quite grasp what its purpose was dramatically and then one day it occurred to me that when Ethan and Marty are leaving the room and the commandant says you know because the, the, these young women are they're gone native and they're screaming and howling and wailing and they don't speak English anymore mm. and and the commandant says it's hard to believe they're white and, and Ethan looks back and the camera moves in on a very unusual shot for Ford and that is the line of demarcation where Ethan realizes that his quest to find Debbie and return her, little Debbie, to return her to white civilization has become a, a quest to find Debbie, teenage jet Debbie, and kill her. That's, that's you know, that's, that's yeah. where he realizes it. But there's that room full of, of, of young white women. And it really just shows that to <clears throat> Comanche Braves, those young white women that they kidnap were precious. Each one of them is worth a, a dozen good ponies or more. And, and, there's no re there's no way in the world that any that that a Comanche having kidnapped Lucy would kill her. She's mm -hmm. too precious. She's worth too much. But he would also be there with her. He certainly wouldn't have left. He wouldn't have wrecked her and left her there. Well, you know, Paul Schrader when he when he wrote Taxi Driver, he and Scorsese were talking about the one thing that they felt was lacking from the searchers was what they call the scar scene, where uh, they had Harvey Keitel as the scar character, who's the pimp in the film. Uh, embracing 
um, Jodie Foster's underage girl character and dancing with her, and there's a certain tenderness between them. Uh, obviously, it's it's illicit, and uh, the film can't show much, but they wouldn't want to show much. But there is a certain tenderness, and Schrader said um, we felt that the searchers would have been enhanced if there was a scene showing that she had some kind of a life with Scar. You know, when when they find her, she doesn't want to go back, and uh, so there is something positive. But he felt that Ford couldn't have faced that. You know, and I had a long talk with Jonathan Leatham, a distinguished novelist, good friend of mine. He wrote a great piece on the searchers, and. We talked for about three hours and we, we concluded the searchers is, is an incoherent text that it's it contradicts itself and it has scenes that are troubling and confusing that aren't fully realized. And I, I'd say that scene in the uh, fort is is like that, you know, uh, it, it flirts with, um, you know, it's it's somewhat racist, you'd have to say the, the idea that these young girls living with Indians have gone insane. And uh, the two ladies who are holding them, one is uh, Mae Marsh, who, who's Birth of a Nation, the girl who jumps off the cliff rather than, you know, this guy's pursuing her and it's this racist uh, scene. Although uh, even in that scene, she jumps off the cliff and he doesn't actually do anything to her. But anyway, but the other lady is Ruth Clifford who's in a lot of Ford films, but it's troubling. And also there was a scene that they shot and didn't include in the film uh, when they go to the fort, um, they encounter Custer. And there's a whole article that a scholar wrote about the Custer scene that was shot. Peter Ortiz played Custer. He was a, an OSS guy who Ford put into Rio Grande. And um, um, he, um, Ethan shows revulsion toward Custer in that scene. That was the point of the scene, that they had slaughtered the, the Indians when you saw that village slaughtered and Ford uses the iconography of the Wounded Knee Massacre and Ethan expresses regret over what happened to Look, which is another complicated problem in the film because Look has just been mistreated by these two guys and then they immediately mourn her when they find her body and there's a jarring disconnect there. There's a great essay on that. The Missing Look Shot by Peter Lehman. Um, he said, if there'd only been a shot where she lands on the ground after the, uh, Marty kicks her out of bed and she rolls down the hill. It's treated as humorous. It's very disturbing to audiences today. And if, if there had been a shot of her, uh, you know, on the ground showing pain and suffering and where we could care about her, it'd be a very different scene. So he wrote a whole essay around that. So there are things, uh, my feeling about the searchers is Ford, it's a very courageous film because Ford is going into areas that are kind of beyond his previous boundaries, you know, in, in many ways. And he uh, and John Wayne, uh, Jimmy Stewart said, uh, you know, when, when you said Wayne was one of the most underappreciated actors, Stewart said exactly the same thing to me. He said that he thought Ethan Edwards was one of the greatest performances he ever saw, which I, I agree. But Wayne is being, you know, channeling his deepest racist crazy impulses and Ford was kind of encouraging him to do that but Ford frames Ethan in very complicated ways but he can't totally control the meanings of the film and he's not fully in command of everything in the film and, and that's why it's troubling and so, sort of incoherent but it also does things that no other Ford film and no other American film does. You know it's interesting Joe I, I like most of us I'll stream through try to find something to watch and invariably, if The Searchers is on, I'll put it on. And 
I don't say that a lot these days. You know, I, as Avi knows, I've been taping movies since high school, mostly on audio to start with, and then later on with the video players. But mm. the searchers just plays and plays and plays. And you're right, uh, Around the World in 80 Days is a forgotten movie. Nobody cares about that movie. The searchers plays. I was going to mention another one of Ford's films because it's it's in color. It's the second cavalry film. She wore a yellow ribbon. Is another very poetic film in so many ways, and you don't normally associate uh, Ford with color. I, and of course, obviously, he did Cheyenne Autumn and Donovan's Reef and Sergeant Rutledge in color. But he, he's known mostly for his black and white films, I would think. Yeah, he preferred black and white. He talks to Bogdanovich in their interview book about. He said black and white was real photography. You know, it separates the men from the boys. <laughs> color you know, is a problem because everything looks pretty in color. And that's why Spielberg, a very important decision not to shoot Schindler's List in color. You know, the studio wanted him. They said, well, could you shoot it in color and we'll release it in black and white? And he, he knew that if they did that, they would release it in color at some point. And he made that critical decision not to shoot it in um, color because he said anything is pretty in color. But Ford's color films are really beautiful. And Winton Hoke uh, shot the most beautiful ones. Uh, she wore a yellow ribbon. Three Godfathers is probably the most spectacular Ford color film. The Searchers and, and The Quiet Man, they're, they're great color films. Um, but he um, he still preferred black and white as much as he could, could do. And, um, you know, Liberty Valance, he chose to film in black and white. Uh, according to William Clothier, the cinematographer, it's because of the flashback where it reveals the, the true story that uh, the shadows uh, were very important to them and, and they felt that in color it would have, wouldn't have worked. Uh, and, and there's a myth that Ford, you know, had to shoot it in black and white because they were trying to save money, which is not true. You know, I, I found Ford's contract for the film and it says black and white film, you know, he insisted on that. And it was an expensive film too because of the stars. But uh, the color, you know, I just want to make the point that she wore yellow ribbon. When I talk about Ford's comedy, which is controversial, as I mentioned, I show two scenes from Shiroi Yellow Ribbon whenever I get a chance. And this this August, by the way, there's going to be a Ford festival in Portland, Maine, his hometown. Um, the Irish um, uh, people, uh, people there who have this historical institute are going to have a Ford festival. I'm going to give the keynote speech. And I'm going to repeat a speech I gave in Ireland uh, when they had a John Ford uh, international conference uh, some years ago. And I decided to bite the bullet and talk about his comedy and defend it. And I showed there are two, two retirement scenes back to back. John Wayne has a scene where he's retiring saying goodbye to the troopers for the last time it's extremely moving and he gets the silver watch from the guys and the, ford puts some humorous touches in but it's very very poignant and that was the scene that got mike wilmington and i angry enough to write our book because we we saw the film at the university of wisconsin in a class and my old teacher russell merritt had the guts to show she wore a ribbon uh in the 60s and um he could only get a black and white print, which is bizarre. They didn't have color prints back then, uh, which handicapped the film a bit. But we we loved it. And but there were these students were hooting at the film, and we were so upset that we we thought, okay, we're going to write a book on Ford and show people why he's great. But so you have this beautiful scene where you know Wayne is is retiring, and it's followed immediately by Victor McLaughlin getting drunk. And Wayne, what Wayne does is uh, McLaughlin has ten days left on his service and 
Wayne's character is worried that McLaughlin might go and get killed. So what does he do? He gives him enough money to go and get wildly drunk at the settler's store. And there's this balletic brawl where McLaughlin is, is fighting a whole saloon full of guys and Francis Ford is the barkeeper. And it's, it's all very joyous and fun. And Winton Hill told me that uh, he, he had trouble with his sons after that film because they, there's a scene where McLaughlin keeps throwing people out down the stairs and they go tumbling. He said his sons kept doing that at their home and he finally had to stop, <laughs> stop them from doing that. But it's a joyous kind of retirement uh, ceremony, but it's it's pure comedy. It's slapstick. So you have this very serious scene followed by the slapstick scene, but there's a there's a serious undertone to the slapstick. It's It's to save this man's life. And at the end of the scene, uh, Wayne and the commander, George O'Brien, kind of exchanged looks, and you know that's in their minds. And I quote Karl Marx, who I say is the first John Ford critic. <laughs> uh, he, he wrote, um, he, he said, Hegel observed somewhere that world historical events happen twice. And Marx added, he forgot to add the first time as tragedy and the second time as comedy. And that's John Ford. Karl Marx understood John Ford's method. World historical events happen twice, first as tragedy and then as comedy. And, but you have to have both in John Ford films to give a complete picture of the world. And that's a, it's a very Irish point of view. The tragedy and ridiculousness are, are kind of a hair breadth separated because that's the way the world is. So in, in 1959, John Wayne decides to direct the Alamo, which of course uh, uh, was a, a, his, his pet baby uh, that he wanted to bring to fruition. Um, John Ford visits the set during the filming. Now, somebody asked me if I could ask you, uh, the, 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 what I've heard is that Wayne uh, was kind of keeping Pappy away from the action, was setting him off and giving him some second unit jobs to keep him busy. Uh, and then I read somewhere else, though, that there are some key sequences with uh, John Wayne and Linda Crystal that mm -hmm. uh, Ford actually did film. What, what do you know about Ford on the Alamo set? Yeah, it is, you know, Ford and Wayne had this sort of conspiracy of silence that Ford didn't do much on the film, but he did a lot. And I talked to a, a crew member, a friend of mine, who heard from one of the guys who worked on the film. He said he was sitting there on the set, or he's on the set, and the station wagon pulls up. John Ford gets out. John Ford walks into the place where they're shooting, and uh, Wayne is trying to direct Richard Widmark, and Ford sits, pl plunks himself down in Wayne's chair, the director's chair, and starts directing the scene and telling him what to do and oh no you guys you know, do it again and blah 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 you know and, and uh, Wayne you know was always kind of in awe of John Ford and he owed him so much and he knew that his whole career depended on John Ford in the beginning although by that this point Ford was depending on Wayne more but Wayne to his great credit didn't want to humiliate Ford by saying get the hell off my set or whatever he should have done but so Ford kept directing scenes and, and this went on and, and there are people who have written about the Alamo in detail I mean there are people who are great experts on the film and they've tracked certain scenes that Ford shot and um, Linda Crystal um, wonderful beautiful South American actress she she plays the female lead in two road together which Ford shot soon after that at the same place Brackettville Texas you know that Alamo village that was built there and um, uh, the, the, the myth they created was that uh, Wayne created a second unit 
and sent Ford out just to do some shots of guys riding horses and things and then threw most of them out of the picture. But he actually, uh, Wayne was kind of in trouble. I mean, it was a huge production. It was, it was kind of bigger than he could handle. And uh, he was not a great director, you know. And I mean, The Alamo to me is a very personal film though. It's, it's very awkward and kind of gauche and, but rather moving in a strange way. And, and uh, you know, it's Wayne's personal statement. And I, I have an interesting story. Hank Worden, who played almost in The Searchers, is in both uh, The Searchers and The Alamo and other Ford films uh, as well as The Searchers. But I said, um, could you tell me what's the difference between Wayne and Ford as directors? And I thought, here's an interesting guy who could tell me. He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, uh, uh, John Ford, uh, uh, yelled at Wayne all the time and, and abused him terribly. And so Wayne thought, according to Hank Worden, the, the way to direct actors is yell at all of them and abuse them all. And he did that to everybody. And uh, Hank Worden said, but I'm a sensitive guy. And if somebody yells at me, I get all, you know, kind of uh, withdrawn and I, I, I'm not good anymore. And But Wayne was doing that to me and I kind of am not too good in the picture, but he said Ford treated me like a baby because he knew that I'm the kind of guy who needs kind of careful handling and, and he was very sweet and charming and funny and, you know, but see the, the great director and it's not just Ford, but Orson Welles, I worked with for five years, they direct everybody differently. You know, there's not one way to direct people. That's what a second rate director will do is just have one basic way, but Ford and Wells and other great directors, each person <clears throat> has a psychology of their own and the director knows how to, how to bring it out, bring out their best qualities. Well, I think part of the problem, and Avi and I have talked about this, is that um, Wayne's direction was a problem, but I also thought the script was a mess. And I think that they had an opportunity to really tell an Alamo story, a real Alamo story, and they did not. they decided to go with myth and uh, the whole kind of drunken Tennessee, uh, all those those parties and nighttime's activities in in Bayard are just uh, they take you away from the story. And it's it, yeah. it, the Alamo actually has a little quality of some of those great barroom brawls in Ford movies, which uh, became kind of a a thing. Well, listen, Joseph, we could probably do another hour easily talking mm -hmm. about nineteen other Ford films. I'd like yeah. to call. I'd like to call you back sometime. I also want to do a Hawks night because I think we could have a lot of fun with Howard Hawks. Oh, I'd love to. Sure. That would be great. We've been listening uh, to some some great commentary from Joseph McBride, his um, his book, um, his uh, newly revised and expanded edition of uh, his critical study of John Ford, which he did with the late Michael Wilmington, will be coming out soon from University Press of Kentucky. Definitely check out his other book on Ford, Searching for John Ford. And Avi, thank you for your commentary as always. Um, I appreciate it, both of you. And you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies, everybody. Keep watching those movies. we got to keep our business alive. Thank, thank you, guys. You. Thank, thank you very you. much. Bye-bye. Good talking to you both.